America is the greatest country the world has ever known. We are a nation of immigrants, pioneers, and patriots. Together, we create the bold, beautiful fabric that is America. We are the city upon the hill, a beacon to the world. America is the land of freedom and unlimited opportunity. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. We the people have stories to share, stories to uplift and inspire. You will feel proud, humbled, and blessed to call yourself an American. Wow, do I have a powerful, strong episode for you today. My guest is retired Navy SEAL Jason Redmond. You might have heard his name being kicked around a bit lately with Task Force Pineapple. The operation taken by civilians and retired military to airlift people out of Afghanistan after the fall. He's amazing, and you are going to love this next hour. The No Quit Gene, Jason's American Story. Welcome to this episode of We the People, Our American Story. For as long as I can remember, I have always been in awe of the Navy SEALs. Their feats with their mental capacity and their physical capacity almost seems superhuman to me. And for the longest time, I have wanted to speak to one of them. And today, I finally have my wish come true. And it's no exaggeration to say I am over the moon to speak with retired Navy SEAL Jason Redman. And Jason, you go by Jay, is that correct? I do. Jay or Jason. Okay. I mean, either one, but I appreciate it. And thank you for saying retired. I can't tell you how many interviews and other podcasts I've done where they say former. And uh, obviously, you know well enough the difference between former and retired. You are still a Navy SEAL. Uh, always. But the difference is if you retire now, you can medically retire from being injured. But if you retire, you did over 20 years. So if you can be a former Navy SEAL, but you would have done under 20 years. Gotcha. Uh, and that's the difference. So I appreciate that. Well, I have to tell you, I received this book on Sunday night. And I think I must have got the old people's version because the print is really large. <laughs> nice. It was 500 pages long, over 500 pages. And Holy I smokes. Who writes that much? I know. I <laughs> you to know I read the entire thing. I was captivated by it. And I was really struck by your honesty because there's a big portion of the book where you don't paint such a pretty picture of yourself. No, it's kind of a funny journey when people read it. I've had a lot of people say, I really hated you at the beginning of the book. <laughs> um, I didn't go that far. <laughs> but no, hey, I, hey I, was, uh, I was a jerk. And it's a lot of what I talk about now, you know, the journey of leadership and uh, how dangerous it is for a young leader to get you know, to walk with two very dangerous allies, ego and arrogance. That's what happened to me. And that's what that book is about. It's a, it's a journey of leadership. And it's also a great story of redemption because it's never too late to come back. And, and it's been pretty neat. Um, that book released in 2013. And I've had so many people from all walks of life, you know, from the business community, from the fire service, military, uh, law enforcement who have said, holy smokes, man, I, I walked a similar path. I got myself in trouble or I made a bad decision and, and uh, I didn't think I could recover, but I read your book and, it, and, and I realized that I could, I could drive forward. And that book really is all about that path. Well, I love it. And I can't wait to read how many other books you have too. 
I have two other ones. So, so overcome. So I tell people that the try to is the story and then overcome is the how to. And then I just released the point man planner. And that's, that's more of a planner and daily journal. There's about 40 pages of new content that aren't in the other two books about how to live your life like a point man, uh, how to be a leader for your own life. And then the rest, it's a quarterly journal to basically map out how we uh, define our mission in this life, how we define our destination, which is our long-term goals, how we stay on course, which is our short-term goals, and how we deal with both the risks and the ambushes that are coming for everybody in this life. What are the origins of the Navy SEALs? So we go all the way back to World War II, and uh, pretty amazing. They were originally called the Scouts and Raiders. And the scouts and raiders were the guys who literally swam across the beach at Normandy. As a matter of fact, uh, on D-Day, we suffered over 75% casualties. It, it was devastating. And, but from the very beginning, they were created to do maritime beach clearance, but also sabotage operations and clandestine operations into the shorelands. And the core of the scouts and raiders training was done at Fort Pierce, Florida. And literally the blueprint for that training is still followed to this day in Navy SEAL training. After the scouts and raiders, shortly thereafter, they became the underwater demolition teams. And then in 1962, uh, John F. Kennedy said, we need more special operations members who really focus on unconventional guerrilla type warfare. And uh, he created the SEAL team. SEAL teams one and SEAL teams two were commissioned January 1st of 62. And, uh, and slowly over the next 20 some years, the UDT teams phased out and all transitioned to the SEAL teams till today, where we have East and West Coast SEAL teams, and um, we're pretty big, even compared to where, and, and big is relative, because right. the reality is there's only about, currently there's only about 2,400 active duty SEALs, and probably in history, there's only been about 12,000 total. I read that in your book. At one time, it was very secret how many teams of Navy SEALs there were. Is that still the case, or is that public knowledge? Uh, you know, if you go online, you can see, you can find that information. Um, I think it's an interesting dynamic in this day and age because the American people have a very strong thirst for information. And some of that is warranted. Some of that, I think, is they need to understand that there are some things that our government and our military does that needs to stay classified just to protect the individuals and the techniques and tactics that uh, go into all that. So that's a little bit of a double-edged sword and <laughs> yeah. funny. I ride that double edge because, you know, obviously I wrote a book and uh, although I will say I worked very closely on, uh, on my books with the Navy special warfare or the SEAL community to make sure I wasn't talking about anything I shouldn't be talking about. Does someone have to approve that before it goes out or not really? Is it just etiquette that you show them ahead of time? It, it, it's technically etiquette, although this gets into a gray area. So when you get out of the military, you no longer, the military has no rule over you. So um, you are not required to basically do that. Now, if you revealed classified information, that information, you are now breaching a government contract because you basically said, hey, I'm not going to talk about these things. So that's where it gets into a gray area. So it's probably much more etiquette. And for me, 
I saw myself as a guy who at one point had really damaged my reputation within the SEAL teams and had to, over a long period of time, build that back up to be a respected leader by the time I left. So <laughs> the last thing I ever would want to do is damage my my reputation and my relationship with the community. So for me, it's always been important to try and maintain that relationship. I still have friends that are in senior leadership positions. And, you know, anytime I'm doing anything that gets out into the public eye, I usually reach back and just say, hey, what do you think about this? Is this okay? What are we doing? Uh, just to make sure. And I try never to, like, you'll never see me go on and I don't evaluate military operations or things like that. I just... That's not my thing. You know, I talk about wounded warrior issues. I talk about resiliency and I talk about leadership. What was your drive to join the military, more specifically the Navy, and even more specifically the Navy SEALs? And you were not a big kid. No, no, I am not. I am, uh, I am not a big guy. I'm on the smaller end of the spectrum for SEALs, uh, but not the smallest by any means. I'm 5'7 uh, and about 170 pounds. Uh, but interestingly enough, it's a little bit of myth. I think the American people picture Navy SEALs as these great big, huge guys, six foot two Arnold Schwarzenegger types. And the reality is most big guys don't make it through SEAL training. It takes a lot of long range muscle endurance. So you've got to be really strong for your body weight. Uh, but the pounding for the amount of running and carrying weight on your joints really takes out a lot of big guys. So believe it or not, we don't have a lot of huge seals. Um, there are some, but the average seal is about 5'10 and 180 pounds. So uh, what led me down that road? I came from a uh, very patriotic family with a lot of military history. I grew up hearing the stories of my father served in the army. He was a paratrooper and a rigger, so he packed parachutes. Uh, my grandfather was a highly decorated B-24 pilot, earned the Distinguished Flying Cross and seven air medals flying B-24s over Europe. My uh, great uncle was actually killed in World War II. He was shot down. He was a pilot in the Pacific Theater. Uh, my grandmother remarried, and, and that grandfather had served. He was an infantryman in the war. Uh, and then on my mother's side, and my mother is a naturalized citizen from Canada, but my grandparents were actually from France. So my grandfather actually fought with the French forces in World War II. So I just had this history of, of military service. And from a very young age, it's all I ever wanted to do. Um, and the ground forces and special operations were something that always fascinated me. And when I was about 14, my dad, who, like I said, had been a, a airborne soldier and in, in the army, said, hey, there were these group of guys that came through airborne school with us. They were called Navy SEALs. And he said they jumped out of planes and they blew things up and, you know, they swam and they were crazy. And he said, you should look into this. And I did. I started looking into it. And this is back in the uh, mid to late 80s. And what I came to find is there really was very little information about the SEALs. And the only things I could commonly find was highly elite, toughest training in the U.S. military, highly secretive. And uh, that really piqued my interest. I don't know what it was. I was probably the most uh, unlikely candidate. I mean, when I was you know, 14 years old, I literally was the 95-pound weekling. I was... <laughs> probably less than that. I was probably 90 pounds and about five feet tall. I didn't play any sports or anything like that. I just said, Hey, I'm going to become a seal. And 
at that point I started training and went out for the football team and got my ass kicked a lot and wrestled and uh, trained hard and never lost sight of that, uh, that goal. How old were you then when you enlisted? I was 17. So I was still in high school when I enlisted. Uh, and I, I became kind of an unruly teenager. Uh, my parents were divorced, you know, just, I don't know, sometimes those type of relationships create some friction in the home. And I started flexing my, uh, my wings and butted heads with my dad. So, um, and I was kind of navigating the road of getting myself in trouble. And, uh, and I think my dad knew I wanted to join the military. So he was all about signing for me to join at 17. That's probably what kept me out of really getting in big trouble because I knew if I got arrested or if I got into drugs or anything else, and I had a lot of friends that were running in those crowds back then, uh, I wouldn't be able to go into the SEAL teams because I needed a security clearance and I needed all these things. So how long from the time you enlisted to the time you became a SEAL? Uh, 17, I went through SEAL training. I checked into SEAL training at, I just turned 19. It's that and, quick. Uh, wow. Yeah. So I, I graduated from high school. I had just turned 18 and I went to boot camp, and then I went to my Navy training school, which back then was called A school or still is called A school in the Navy and did that. And then there was a little bit of delay waiting to go to SEAL training. So I went and actually uh, checked into the East Coast SEAL team headquarters. And I worked there for almost a year, you know, so I was 19 when I headed out to SEAL training. There is this huge aura about the Navy SEALs and a huge mystery and a huge, I think, like, we can't believe you're real because of the basic training, or I guess, what would you call it? I, I, it was only recently that I learned that basic training is Army, Marines is boot camp. Marines are very specific about that. What's it called for our Navy SEAL training? It's called BUDS. stands for Basic Underwater Demolition okay. SEAL Training. Okay. There is a huge mystery about that and how much you guys go through. Was it as tough or tougher than you thought it would be? And was it harder physically or mentally? And I already know what you're going to say on that, I'm sure. Great questions. It's, it's brutally hard. I mean, there's no doubt about it. What is amazing is going all the way back to the original training in Fort Pierce, Florida to today, the attrition rate is pretty much maintained almost the same, which is roughly 75 to 80% of every class uh, quits or gets uh, academically or medically dropped uh, with the vast majority being they quit. My class started with 148 and we graduated, I think, 22 originals. I actually didn't graduate with my original class. I rolled to another class. And you got sick, right? I or think, you hurt yourself? Yeah, I got hurt. I got hurt twice, actually, as I went through training. And, and that's common. About 25% of students graduate with their original class. How far so, were you into it when you got hurt? Uh, I was into second phase, the beginning of second phase and SEAL training is broken technically into four phases. Okay. You have pre-training okay. and then you have first phase. Uh, first phase is really designed to weed you out. So it is just physically grueling. Uh, the infamous hell week occurs during first phase. Second phase is dive training and third phase is land warfare. When I think of SEAL training, I see in those videos where you're all holding like linking arms on the beach. What is that? And like, like the waves come or what is that? It's called surf torture, which in this politically correct 
ridiculous world we live in, we're probably not allowed to call it that anymore. You know, it's probably called water remediation or something. It's aptly named surf torture because you lock arms with your class and you march out into the surf and then you sit down or lay down into the wave. So basically your, your feet are pointing. Sometimes they'll even turn you around so that your head is towards the waves and your feet are towards shore. So, you know, half the time your head's under the water and you lay there locked arm in arm with your classmates um, while you literally um, get hypothermia. Uh, the water temperature out in San Diego, where you go through SEAL training, is in the winter, it's as low as the low 50s. In the summer, you may get lucky that it gets up to the high 60s, low 70s, but it's still much colder than your body temperature. So it only takes a certain period of time before it cools your body temperature down until you become hypothermic. And, uh, and you get to really learn to hate the sand and the cold and just freezing. I mean, going through training frequently, your back and muscles and legs are all locked up from shaking all the time. You'll be so sore from just constantly shaking. You'll be chafed because of all the sand you have in every crack and crevice of your body. Uh, it's not uncommon for guys scalps to be um, rubbed raw or bald because you know you're you're constantly carrying this boat on top of your head and the sand between your hat and the boat grinds it raw um, it's not uncommon for guys to have holes in their thighs from their thighs and the sand uh, it's not uncommon for your fingernails and toenails to fall off from being wet uh, all the time uh, it is brutal uh, what makes it, you want to do that well, because you know what the end state is and to be a part of something greater than yourself and to be part of, I mean, you, you talk about the aura and the legend of the SEAL teams. I mean, you know that this is the road that you have to walk in order to do this. And, and in, a, in a current culture that is so focused on comfort, um, and I talk a lot about this, you know, you don't, I talk a lot about how do we build an overcome mindset? I mean, hence the name of my second book. And the reality is an overcome mindset is never built in comfort. It's built in the hard times. It's built when we face adversity. It's built when we suffer through pain. And uh, that crucible of going through that with other individuals is what makes the SEAL team so unique. I've been through, you know, U.S. Army Airborne School. I've been through U.S. Army Ranger School. Uh, I've watched other both foreign and American units put people through training and there is nothing like SEAL training the way we do it. It is a formula that works and it is why the SEAL teams are so effective on the battlefield. So I just pray that the leadership of our military never loses sight of that. And, you know, frequently over the years, there have been politicians and military leaders that have said your attrition rate is too high. This cannot be effective. It cannot be efficient. They try and step in and change things. And thankfully, the Naval Special Warfare community has managed to maintain BUDS for the most part at the same level it's been since its inception. You have to have that attrition though, don't you? Just reading your book and everything that you go through, you cannot have the top 80% get through, right? It, it, it wouldn't be the same. I mean, you would need, you know, one of the things that people ask, you know, hey, what makes a Navy SEAL? And the Navy has spent millions and millions of dollars trying to understand this. They've hired teams of psychologists and psychiatrists to assess guys. They've come up with all kinds of tests and they've never been able to figure it out. I mean, SEALs come from all walks of life, all sizes, all races, all colors, creeds, religions. 
And the one thing that unifies us is you, you, you know, I've heard guys call it the no quit gene. It's the gene that enables you to endure pain and discomfort for much longer than the average person. No one can figure out what makes you tick, right? No. And it, it is interesting because the SEAL, you know, it's funny, uh, the SEAL teams, we have definitely a, an interesting group. We have individuals who went to seminary school. We have individuals who literally could do anything. They, we have individuals who are rocket scientists, who have physics degrees. And we also have individuals who would have been criminals and probably felons if they had not somehow navigated their path to become SEALs, you know, who came from terrible backgrounds. In your book, you talk a lot about what you went through, how you developed an ego, didn't take criticism well. I imagine that would be hard not to develop an ego when you are one of that top 15%. You get through that training and you have to have that ego in some regards to do what you do, right? That's a really precarious balance, isn't it? You do, but it needs to become confidence and not arrogance. And that's where um, the line gets blurred. And, and, and then unfortunately, that's a common thing for young men. I now speak to professional sports teams and college teams, and it's a common problem they have too. When you're a young man, and I, do, and I say young man because most young women don't, I don't know, regardless of what you believe in society, men and women are different. I'm with you Yeah. There. Yeah, we're wired. Not real popular to say today, but <laughs> I know, really. But we think differently. We obviously, physically and physiologically, we're different. And I don't see as many women that achieve high levels of success when they're young and start to develop levels of arrogance and a big ego. It does happen, but it's a much more common thing in young men. Maybe that's and because we don't have that testosterone like surging through us. It could be. Yeah, that, I'm sure that's a part of it. And I, for me, unfortunately, I was young and uh, I was a young man and I hadn't been exposed to a whole lot in life before I came into the SEAL teams. And, uh, and I did very well. I did very well as a young man and accelerated into different leadership levels and, and instructor levels. And uh, unfortunately, at some point, uh, confidence turned into arrogance and it almost ended my career. Your first deployment was Columbia, and that was, um, I think you wrote where you saw your first wounded person that died that you were helping. I was exposed a lot. That was the first time, I don't want to say that deployment was the first time I'd been out of the country, but it was the first time I'd been exposed to many things as a young man. I was 20 years old, and I was exposed to, I, I take that back, I was 21 and I was exposed to the highest levels of poverty I've ever seen in my life, just mind-blowing levels of poverty that we don't have a lot of places in America like that. I do think there are some places, unfortunately, that exist, but I mean, you, you don't see poverty like that until you go to a very impoverished third world country. So I was exposed to that. I was exposed for the first time to some pretty high levels of violence. Uh, for the first time, to, I saw individuals severely injured. Um, I saw individuals, uh, you know, obviously killed when the, uh, in one of the Colombians in our camp was shot and killed. Um, and, you know, the flip side of that coin, those are things that unfortunately, as a warrior or a soldier, you have to deal with. Uh, you have to deal with and it has to become part of, unfortunately, who you are. That's, the, you know, the negative aspect of war and being a warrior. So 
on the flip side, it exposed me to things. And, and now today I talk a lot about perspective. The perspective of seeing those things made me even more appreciate the greatness of America and the greatness of human beings as a whole, the amazing things that we can do and we have the ability to do. You see the best and worst of mankind in the military and on the battlefield. We have a lot to cover and I want to skip ahead a little bit. You were deployed to Afghanistan, correct? Yes. And that's really where all your troubles began? Uh, <laughs> my troubles began probably a few years before that, okay. but they were developing and the perfect storm happened in Afghanistan for sure. Okay. And this is then where you were having trouble taking the criticism. And I imagine you were a little bit confused. You were very defensive and it got to the point where they backed you out, right? Well, yes, they, they almost kicked me out. And, and in order, let's go back just a little. I'll, I'll tell okay. this story. I'll okay. try and tell it as quickly as possible. Okay. So when I got commissioned, uh, I got picked up for a commissioning program in uh, the end of 2000. And I started that commissioning program in the summer of 2001. They sent me to school. So I had done very well. I accelerated as a senior or as a, not a senior, but a, a mid-level enlisted leader. And then um, got sent to school to become an officer. Well, while I was at school, 9-11 happened. But at school, as a part of the ROTC, I continued to excel as a leader and a student and a member of the ROTC. I came back to the SEAL teams in uh, May of 2004. Well, while I was gone, uh, the world had obviously drastically changed. The SEAL teams, when I left, we were still a peacetime military. And a peacetime military is very, very different from a wartime military. You were told uh, to stay in school, right? That that would be the best thing that you could do to help the military to finish your education. I was. I had an amazing leader who said, hey, this war on terror is going to go on for decades. Very yeah. prophetically, he said that. But the bottom line is all of our tactics, everything we had done, had changed overnight. And when I got commissioned, I came back thinking, you know, a lot of ego, a lot of arrogance that I was, you know, going to be, I don't know, <laughs> the general patent of leadership for the SEAL teams <laughs> or something. And I came back and everything had changed. I did not have extensive combat experience in any way, uh, almost zero, aside from some of the things I saw in Colombia. And instead, I stepped back into a platoon where I had over half the platoon had combat experience. And these were guys I needed to lead. Not only that, a lot of our tactics and techniques up to that point were still based on Vietnam era tactics. Well, we quickly learned that in the mountains of Afghanistan and in the jungle, or I'm sorry, in the desert and urban sprawl of Iraq, that didn't work. And anyways, the bottom line, all of that came to this perfect storm where I was making mistakes. I was hanging on too tight. And like a lot of young leaders do, instead of humbling myself and saying, hey, guys, I don't know how to do this. I was too proud to do that. And that's a danger for a lot of young leaders. I mean, the reality is leadership isn't perfection. As a matter of fact, other individuals, unless you got some crappy people you're working with, they'll respect individuals because you're not expected to be perfect in everything as a leader. That's why you have a team of individuals. They all bring their unique skills, but I didn't see that then. And it wasn't so much that you made the mistakes. It was that you wouldn't own up to them, right? That you- That's right. That I fought back against it. And it all- culminate with a bad call on a mission in Afghanistan. And thankfully, I didn't get anybody killed. Uh, if I had, that would have been a lot different. I took myself and a machine gunner down into a valley. And when we talk about a valley, it was like two kilometers down almost a cliff. 
to try and support a, an element that was on the ground in a firefight. It was a very bad call. And I actually basically told a senior enlisted leader, you know, who said, hey, don't do that. I basically said, you know, screw off. He and I yeah. really had a very strenuous relationship. And you had so. good intentions with that. Let's be clear. You had good intentions when you went down into the valley, but you were I did. Single, single focus that you did not think about all sides of what was happening, right? That's correct. And and the reality is when you say good intentions, I did have good intentions, but at the end of the day, there were selfish intentions. And that's what I talk about. This is one of the dangers of leadership. You know, if you're doing it for yourself and that's what I was, I saw a shortcut to be this great leader. Look at me, I can be the hero. Incredibly dangerous in any organization and it can be deadly in the military or in law enforcement or fire. So that's why it was such a big deal and unfortunately, you know, they called me out on it, rightfully so, but I fought against it. And I said, no, I did the right thing. You know, I went, I ran to the sound of the guns. I did. And, and finally they got fed up and they said, you know, I had several teammates who said, kick him out. Ugh. And you were caught off guard when you were told that there were two types of people who wanted to be Navy SEALs, right? Those That's right. who want to be the best and be part of something larger than themselves are those who joined for the cool guy factor. And you are questioned about, are you sure you're not here because you want to be the cool guy? Yeah. And, and by a very respected SEAL, our leading petty officer, who was a, a phenomenal SEAL, outstanding lead sniper, and just a great, great guy, a guy I'd known my whole career. And yeah, that was kind of a punch to the face. And I will say, as I get older, I don't think it's quite that black and white. I think anything in our lives you know, special operations or professional sports, or I don't even care, you know, some, you know, a hedge fund manager, there is a cool guy factor <laughs> to a part of that that brings people to do it. But obviously your, your motivation when things get hard has to be tied to the real reasons. And that is, you know, obviously within the military, it's the unit, it's your country, it goes down to your base values that far, far exceed, you know, the cool guy factor. Although I wouldn't put the cool guy factor, I wouldn't put the hedge guy with the cool factor of a, of a Navy SEAL. Well, believe it or not, those guys think they're very cool. I've spoke to some <laughs> of them. You talk about, uh, I once had a hedge fund manager tell it's me that funny. he could do that. He, he basically said, I'm practically a SEAL. He's like, I could do everything you guys do. I mean, the level of risk and stuff that I take with money, I know I could make it through SEAL training. And so I- I just smiled at him and thought about how much I wanted to kill him. Because, I mean, let's be realistic. You're a Navy SEAL. There's always going to be that coolness factor, right? There just is. Yeah, I mean, oh, you know, come they're, on. they're... Come on. People are enamored by all of you. Because I don't think, because you do what you do, and because that's part of your personality, and... I talked to a lot of wounded warriors. I don't think that you understand, like you don't get it. You don't get how we feel about you. I think it's really hard. I'm sorry, but this is truly how I feel. I don't think you understand how much we admire you and are in awe of what you do and don't understand how you do it because most of us couldn't. No, I, I can appreciate that. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And, and thankfully, the SEAL teams have really created a legendary uh, community and, and heritage. And, um, you know, and, and, and there have been some hard times in the recent years. We've, we've I think, had some individuals that have gotten off track um, within all of special operations because, I mean, over 20 years of very hard warfare, 
um, has really taken a toll on the community. So, but at the end of the day, it's been pretty amazing to be a part of a history and heritage that I hope and pray will continue for the future of our country. I don't know. I worry the military is becoming a little bit of a social experiment right now. And, uh, and at the end of the day, you know, warfare is about one individual trying to kill another. Uh, there is no social experiment. There is no equality. Uh, the enemy could care less about that. You know, it is one individual trying to kill another, and it is your ability to endure hardship, your ability to fight that makes that difference. And, and that's what the military should be focused on. The SEAL teams have done that to a very high level, and I pray that they will continue that. Um, and I pray that they don't lose that in, in all aspects of the military. You went to Army Ranger School. Yeah. To try to get that. They, they made you do that. I did. And you went in with a, let's just say a very bad attitude. Yes. But you came out with your head in a different space. You were able to spend some time with your family. Your wife, I know, has been a huge support to you. And you came back and after a working through time, you were able to get your brothers back with you again. Yes. Ranger school was tough. I, if you're right. I showed up with a bad attitude, but uh, it was exactly what I needed. If you're listening to this, my hat's off. Anybody that's been through Ranger school, our Rangers out there, Ranger school is incredibly hard. It is not harder than buds for all you Rangers out there. Doesn't, it doesn't come close to buds, but it is definitely hard. It's but it was a different hard. kind of hard. That it's you a different kind of hard. Yeah. It's a shorter grind. Uh, so it's just different, but it was very hard and my hat's off to all the Ranger graduates, but it was exactly what I needed. I think for the first time in my life, because a lot of people don't realize Ranger school at its heart and soul is a leadership school. That's what it is designed to do, to, to teach individuals how to lead in very stressful, chaotic situations with a lot of adversity. And they do that through lack of sleep. They do it through hard evolutions. They do it through lack of food. And, uh, and, it, and it works. And for the first time, I really had to come to grips with who I was and that I wasn't the leader that I thought I was. And, and I finally kind of grew up and came to understand and started this journey of leadership to be a better leader. And not to say that I didn't make a, a lot of mistakes, even to this day, I still make some mistakes, but Ranger School really was the start of that journey. And, uh, and I'm thankful that I had the opportunity to go there. Uh, although, you know, that's a story in itself. As a matter of fact, as you're reading in the Trident, you know, I think a lot of guys joke with me that this, the formula for a SEAL book is to write about buds and then write about deployments. And they're like, you know, I had friends that were like, did you follow the SEAL formula? And I'm like, no, I actually wrote about Ranger School. And you got a lot of grief in Army Ranger School because you were a Navy SEAL. I did. I was the only SEAL in my class. And the, um, you know, there is a, there is a love hate relationship between the army and the SEAL teams. And some of the instructors were cool to me, but most of them did not like me and uh, they definitely let it show. So I got a lot of extra attention. Well, it is September of 2007 and you're in Iraq. And what happened that night of your traumatic injuries? I had come back from my leadership failures and I had excelled. Our deployment in Iraq was phenomenal, probably literally the best. Everything you ever dream of doing as a young SEAL or as a SEAL operator, we did on that deployment. You were about ready to come home. We were. We were less. We were one week. I, I was three weeks out. I was in the last wave to come home, but we were one week away from sending our first wave of guys home. As a matter of fact, that's why my point man uh, wasn't on the actual 
the the direct assault part of the mission that night and and i love that guy and he often says to me that's the reason you got all shot up because i wasn't there <laughs> there could be some truth to that i don't know but yeah we walked into a very well executed ambush and myself and three other teammates got all shot up i was hit eight times between my body and body armor um i took two rounds in the left elbow that almost took my arm off i took a round in the face from a uh, very large, uh, it's called a PKM machine gun. So it's a belt-fed Chinese or Russian-made machine gun, shoots bullets about the size of your thumb. And it did a, just a, a ton of damage. The, the bullet that hit me in the face caught me in front of the ear. I had turned to try and move back out of the line of fire. And that round, after I had been hit in the body armor and everything in the front, and it caught me from behind, traveled through my face, exited the right side of my nose, took off almost my entire nose, blew out my right cheekbone, uh, broke what was left and kicked it out to the right, blew out my orbital floor, it broke all the bones above my eye. Um, it, it broke the head of my jaw, it shattered my jaw down to my chin, um, and it knocked me out for a period of time during this firefight. So uh, pretty devastating. What I found interesting in your book is you talked about as you were getting ready to go, because it was really quick. Wasn't it like two hours? They came in and said, we're doing this and get ready. We're going. It was really quick. And you kept hearing or telling yourself, what are they called? The side? Side plates. Side plates, which you normally yeah. wouldn't wear in that kind of situation, right? Right. You kept hearing that in your head. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can, I think there were a lot of God moments at night, you know, or you can call it fate or serendipity, whatever you believe. Um, I'm fine to call God it God. <laughs> yeah, because I normally did not, you know, um, on the battlefield, ounces equal pounds. And thankfully, in special operations, you have a little bit of latitude in what type of gear you carry, depending on the mission. Some of the, you know, you had to wear your body armor, front plate and rear plate, but side plates and things like that were optional. And obviously, when you're walking miles in the desert and you're climbing over walls, or you're fighting someone on the ground, all that adds up. So when we did operations like that, typically, I did not wear them. Um, you know, just personal choice. But that night, some little voice said, wear your side plates. And, uh, and I actually took a round from that machine gun, uh, ricocheted off my side plate uh, while I was on the ground getting shot up. And was that one of two times, I think, um, where you said the hairs on the back of your neck raised? Definitely right before the firefight broke out, uh, I definitely, to this day, and I talk to a lot of people about heed your sixth sense. You know, I really wish I had listened a little better. I chalked it up to fear and I ignored it and drove forward. But uh, my, I call it, I said my spidey sense was going crazy. And sure enough, only a few minutes later, we walked into that ambush. And you thought that your arm had been blown off or shot off, right? Why, why did you think that? Uh, so I took two rounds in the elbow that, that really did a lot of damage to my nerves and my arm. So I had no feeling when the bullets hit me in the arm, I couldn't feel it. And when I fell on the ground, uh, I was on top. I, apparently I was laying on top of my arm, but because I couldn't feel it, I didn't know it. So when I reached over, I thought I had no arm. You didn't know that for a long time, because you also said that at one point when they were medevacking you out, you said, get my arm. I don't want my arm left in this God for Yeah, I said, grab my helmet and grab my arm. So, yeah. 
<laughs> you want to leave a piece of you in that horrible place. Yeah. Wow, that is amazing. Were you in a lot of pain at that time or was adrenaline such that not really? Yeah, after I got shot, I was in a lot of pain when I got shot in the arm. But uh, after I got shot in the face, I did not, I didn't feel any pain again until my team leader tried to drag me to the helicopter. I want to read something from your book. May I? Sure. Okay. Attention to all who enter here. If you are coming into this room with sorrow or to feel sorry for my wounds, go elsewhere. The wounds I received, I got in a job I love, doing it for people I love, supporting the freedom of a country I deeply love. I am incredibly tough and will make a full recovery. What is full? That is the absolute utmost physically my body has the ability to recover. Then I will push that about 20% further through sheer mental tenacity. This room you are about to enter is a room of fun, optimism, and intense rapid regrowth. If you are not prepared for that, go elsewhere from the management. And I see that right behind you. And is it on the desk as well? Yeah, we, we <laughs> so these aren't the originals. The uh, original actually hangs in the wounded ward at uh, Walter Reed. But uh, that was the proclamation, the sign that I put on my hospital door because I, I wasn't going to allow pity into the room. I wasn't going to feel sorry for myself. And that's a big thing that I talk to a lot of people about when, we, when we're hit with adversity, when we're hit with problems in this life. Uh, the greatest gift you have is you have a choice. You can choose how you're going to deal with it. And that sign kind of became the manifestation of that choice. You had overheard um, people feeling sorry for you when they thought you were asleep and that bugged you. It did. It did. You didn't want that. No, I mean, you know, anytime you're, man, you're seriously messed up, there's always going to be doubts and it's easy to, I, I talk about being on the X and the X is the point of the attack, the point of crisis, the point of any catastrophic event in your life. And when you're on the X and I was on the X in that hospital bed, it's very easy to feel sorry for yourself and to start to get what I call a victim mindset. And it's easy to be a victim. It's harder to be a victor and a victor drives forward. A victor gets off that X. A victor doesn't allow too much time and effort to feel sorry for yourself. And, but I was struggling with that at that moment. And, and when those people said those things, it really kind of became the spark that I said, Hey, that ain't going to be me. And something uh, special happened with that. It did. That uh, sign ended up going viral. Uh, a New York firefighter I later became friends with wrote about it in a blog and took a picture and it, it went on all the uh, national news networks. It was talked about. And, uh, it earned me an invitation to the White House to meet President Bush. Uh, to this day, millions of individuals have seen that sign. I talk a lot about it all across the country. We sell replicas of it for people to you know, motivate and inspire them. Um, Secretary Robert Gates wrote about it in his book. Um, First Lady Michelle Obama wrote about it twice in her book. It moved her so much. The great thing about it is that is the power of choice. That is the power of choosing positivity over negativity. You never know the impact that that's going to have. You did not eat for seven months. Well, I know I was tricked and uh, wired shut for seven months. So I was able to, I, I was able to eat after that, but yes, feeding, getting, eating through a stomach tube Ugh. was definitely not, not fun. And I lost a lot of weight and I'm not a big guy. As I was about so. to say, you probably didn't have a whole lot to lose. No. <laughs> 
Well, I think that your story is great because it's so much about overcoming yourself. And at one point you talked about when you were in the depths of despair, I don't know how much you really considered it, but you had a gun. Failed as a leader. And what's interesting, a lot of people are shocked to hear this. A lot of people wrongly assume that my battlefield injuries were the hardest thing I've ever been through. And that's not true. Uh, my failure as a young leader and being ostracized and, you know, threatened to be kicked out of the SEAL teams and to be told, hey, you, you don't measure up. We're, we're questioning your ability to be a SEAL. That was probably the biggest blow I've ever had in my life. And for a very short period of time, I thought about taking my own life. Uh, thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, I didn't. Uh, I had young kids and I just, you know, I do. I believe suicide is, is the ultimate form of quitting. Um, and for those out there who, oh, how dare you say that, you know, uh, I hate to tell you, I've watched the impact. I have had friends that kill themselves. And I know that individuals are enduring so much pain. Uh, I felt that pain also. But suicide's like a suicide bomber going off when you do that. You know, you, you leave behind the devastation and the destruction, the shrapnel that you set off for all the people around you when you take your life. Your pain so, may be gone, but the pain is spread to everybody else. Now. Yeah, exactly. So I am a staunch advocate against suicide. I am a staunch advocate for mental health. Uh, I encourage people to talk about their mental health issues. I struggled with PTSD. Uh, I am a big time advocate for um, the study of traumatic brain injuries. So yeah, if you're thinking about that, please understand you have no idea the havoc you will wreck if you make that decision. I know our hour is getting to the end. I have two things I want to ask you about. Um, you had a lot of surgeries and you talked about going through the airports and how upset you would get people looking at your, your face and all the injuries and the assumptions. And that really compelled you to begin, is it Wounded Wear? Is that what it's called? Yeah, I, I ran an organization for um, 10 years, Wounded Wear, that later became the Combat Wounded Coalition. And what was that about? You know, it was just, I wanted to create more awareness. I wanted two things. I wanted Wounded Warriors to have pride in their injuries. Um, you know, this sacrifice that they had given for our country and for freedom um, we're an all-volunteer force. Nobody told you to go serve overseas. And thankfully, the U.S. military still is that way right now. So um, if you are injured in, in the line of duty, I think there should be tremendous pride in that. And the bigger thing was I wanted to raise awareness for the American public. Um, like you said, people wrongly assume that my injuries and you know this facial trauma that everybody saw as I was walking around was caused by a motorcycle accident or a car accident or something like that. And that was kind of mind blowing to me that we'd been at war for six years at this point and no one, <laughs> no one thought to think, oh, hey, I wonder if this could have happened on the battlefield. So maybe I was naive in that thinking, I don't know, but it just made me want to raise that awareness. So we created Wounded Wear um, to raise that awareness. It grew into a, a pretty large organization. We raised about $3 million over the life of the organization. Uh, we provided um, clothing and adaptive clothing for wounded warriors. We went on to do all kinds of events. 
And uh, I ended up phasing it down in 2010 when um, one of the things we did not focus on was mental health. And I began to realize that that was the biggest hurdle our wounded warriors face is mental health and, and traumatic brain injuries. So I decided to phase it down and then turn my focus to other organizations that are focused on that. So now I, I support several great organizations, the Gary Sinise Foundation, Get Headstrong, and Concussion Legacy Foundation. My last question for you today is, what does America mean to you? America means freedom and opportunity. And, uh, and the thing that people need to understand, because right now we're in a strange time in America, um, people are willfully giving away their freedom and opportunity. And they're giving it away because they think there's some sort of guarantee a guarantee of success and happiness and all these things. And the founding fathers never, there was no guarantee. It is the pursuit, the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. And that means that you have freedom and opportunity, that you can go out and go after those things. And, and right now there is a strange, strange time in America um, we are developing as Americans, the victim mindset, uh, individuals are growing up and being told, well, regardless of your race, creed, color, gender, uh, gender affiliation, I mean, religion, I don't care what it is. Uh, you're a victim and you will not be able to get ahead unless somebody else helps you get ahead. And that's such a lie. Um, America was founded on, on, on this grit and resiliency. That's what made America what it was great. And, and, the, and here's why it's a lie. There are tens of millions of incredibly successful Americans from all walks of life. Individuals, we're, we're this immigrant nation that came together and, and you have incredibly successful Chinese and, and Mexican and African and, and European and, and American Indian that are multi, multi-millionaires over and over because, because they were victors and not victims. And it's, it's just sad right now. It's like we're going backwards. And I think there's this lie that's being told. So I believe strongly in the America that, that our founding fathers had intended, and they weren't perfect. And that's a really frustrating thing to watch right now. You know, the founding fathers are being painted as racist and as terrible people. There might have been a couple of them that were. There may be truth in that. But you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater because the vast majority and the premise that, that they had for America is groundbreaking. There's never been another nation in the history of the world that was built on the foundations that America has. And what they intended, regardless of what you want to believe about them, was right. And, and as they moved forward, we had great leaders who, who picked up the torch of where they were, great leaders like Abraham Lincoln, who fought to totally eradicate slavery, this, this blight on American history. But uh, I'm... I'm I'm really frustrated and, and a little saddened to see where we are right now. And I only pray that we can find the right leader that'll bring America back together because a lot of the leaders we have, unfortunately, I feel like they're driving both sides as far away from each other as possible. Thank you for sharing your American story with us. Tina, my honor. Thanks for having me on. So like me, after spending this hour with Jason, you probably think that Navy SEALs are even greater than you did before, and you'd probably be right. Do yourself a favor, go out and buy Jason's book, The Trident. It is a fascinating read, and once you pick it up, you will not want to put it down. 
You've listened to all these podcast episodes. You know I have fabulous guests. Can you do me a favor? Please, if you haven't already, leave me a review, a rating, subscribe, follow, share with family and friends. These are small things that only take a few minutes of your time, but help me out in great ways. My guest next week is law enforcement officer Eric McCanns. Eric has gained a large and loyal following on LinkedIn because of the positive messages he posts on that social media platform. See you on Friday.